0: Welcome to another Theology on Mission podcast. Now we've gotten a couple of uh, encouraging uh, emails and feedback, but a lot of them said that people can't hear us as well as they'd like. So Dave and I now literally have large books that our mics are on. Uh, We're resting on on the creeds and councils. We're resting on the creeds and councils of the Christian tradition. Alright, so today we're going to talk about cultures of power and our place within them. But first, I realize that we have never done a proper introduction. This uh, we view this podcast kind of like a hanging out at a coffee shop or like we didn't a back tell porch. Them where we're
1: from here, where, where we're we we're reporting well, from. Well, well, you can you can say where you're from. So you No, I don't mean where we're from. We're recording this from Northern Baptist Seminary. Yes, we're recording this at Northern Baptist the Seminary. Conference room in the conference room
0: in the library. But we'd like to think with our listeners and our friends that we're gathered around a coffee shop or hanging out at a, at a back porch yeah, in the evening or something. But we kind of are, and so we like to talk about life, gospel, God, everything else. Uh, but in that situation, we'd like for you know people to, to kind of know us and us to know them. So, uh, Dave, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit. Who are you? Where did you come from?
1: Uh, boy, that's so wide of a question. I have no idea where to begin, but um, let's see. Uh, how would I self-define myself? This is going to... This is going to get into a
0: little shh Wait, wait. Now I'm going to impersonate Stanley Howard. I don't know who I am. I just know who I am because my friends tell me who I am. So how can That's I even one. answer this question of who am I? Tell me about That's myself. That is one of
1: the worst Stanley Howard's invitations. <laughs> all
0: right.
1: So just, all right.
0: You just, where did you grow up and you were like, okay, God
1: I, It's I, not that hard. I was born in Chicago. Shortly after my parents left Owen Sound, Ontario. Then we moved back to Canada, where I grew up most of my uh, young elementary school, junior high, some of my high school years. And then, uh, okay, and then I guess the rest is history uh, Wheaton College, Northern Seminary, several other seminaries, PhD. Um, I, okay, so why don't we do this? What's the most, what's the thing? that you think most people don't know about you. I'll I'll start with mine. Most people don't know I was a stockbroker before I was a theologian. And to me, I think that in and of itself makes me unique as a theologian. Stockbroker, pastor, then theologian. I think that's the path every good theologian should go through. (laughs) Get the crap beat out of you on Wall Street. Realize what a decadent, decadent, abhorrent evil cesspool of a world we live in. Read Reinhold Niebuhr and then try to find Jesus through the church. That's me in one sentence. Well, actually three sentences or less. Now over to you. All What's right, the one thing you, people, you don't think people know about uh, you? I,
0: oh gosh, I don't know. I'm not a very interesting person. I just like reading books and I watch the Cubs play baseball and stuff. Uh, I think it's funny or interesting that uh, the two of us are both twins. So that's, uh, I'm the, an identical twin, you, you're a fraternal Just to twin. be
1: sure, people don't misunderstand We're not misunderstand twins to each other. You said. We yeah. have
0: different twins. So I think that's an interesting fact uh, between the two of us. I'm from California originally, San Jose, Bay Area. Um,
1: That'll screw you up real good.
0: And I guess. And then, um, so I went to school in Santa Cruz, met my wife there. Uh, but then we left California and moved to the Midwest, Chicago to go to seminary, and I've been here ever since for about 15 years. Uh, it's pretty much your fault that I got uh, a doctorate, and now I'm teaching here in Northern, so that's good. That's another story.
1: You're not telling me the, you know what story about...
0: No, we'll <laughs> say that for another time. Dave's got all these <laughs> stories. Most of them are uh, 90% artificial. From Northern Seminary, in partnership with Missio Alliance, this is Theology on Mission,
1: the podcast exploring God and integrating faith and in life. Here are your hosts, Jeff Holsglaw and David Fitch.
0: So, so culture, church and culture. You and I both teach a class called The Theology of Church and Culture. We teach it every year. Uh, And and so this is a topic that's really important to us. And so we're going to kind of bat it around and then kind of get back to some of the things that we've been talking about recently. So why why does culture matter? If I were to ask you really quick, I have some standard answers here, but why does culture matter for the church and for the task of theology? Why do we care?
1: Uh, well, another way to say the same question is why does language matter? Why does a ability to communicate matter? Why um, um, yeah, uh, basically nothing's possible in terms of the gospel, apart from inhabiting a culture, communicating through the various means, most not, not least of which is language. And the way language, symbol, art, uh, the way ideology, discourse, uh, television, media, the way all these things work to shape our minds and shape our understandings is incredibly important to understand if we have any hope of inhabiting the world for the gospel.
0: So in our view, culture is a real expansive term. It's unavoidable. It's something that's part of uh, every aspect of life. It's not just cultural industries like arts and entertainments or maybe politics. And but It's every facet of our life being practices, rituals, and language and things like yeah, that.
1: Yeah, there's, there's nary a thing you can do without some sort of cultural formation. And because including of that... Including sitting around this table, including doing this podcast, including the way you and I are talking to one another, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yes. So our friendly banter and friendship and things like that are all um, formed by certain cultural forces of of growing up, maybe of both being twins, blah, blah, blah. So that's unavoidable. It's also unavoidable in the sense that if we're going to take the church seriously, then we have to understand that the church is uh, in the midst of all sorts of other social, cultural, political forces that you can't just ignore or pretend aren't affecting you. And often those that ignore or pretend like culture isn't affecting them are the ones that are being changed and conformed to the most. Uh, Right. So, but then what about the church?
1: Well, uh, I guess what I just want to say is that, you know, being the church, we often get caught up in these two bifurcated options. One is we reject all culture that probably's been most associated with the fundamentalist part of my upbringing. We reject the movies. I didn't go to a movie until I was nineteen. No, eighteen. That's actually interesting fact. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there's the opposite pole. There, uh, all culture is good to be accepted. We look for God in all things, and uh, there again, that's. In light of who we are as Christians, that's that's not helpful. It doesn't engage culture. It simply gets absorbed by culture. And so the church in some way has to be a presence in culture that has an integrity unto its own in order to engage, dialogue, intersect, join with the culture it finds itself in. And that's the unique dynamic of mission. So the church becomes extremely important, almost inextricably related to the task of mission. And that's why some of us like to say the church does not do mission, the church does not have a mission, the church, God has a mission and the church is part of it.
0: So in that sense, uh, we believe that every proclamation of the gospel is challenging and transformative, so therefore it, these terms aren't static, they're very dynamic. Uh, I remember I was talking with somebody about teaching this class, Theology of Church and Culture, And uh, he was, he's not a part of the church, you know, he has a low view of religion, and he's just like, he looked at me, he's like, can they really help? Can the church really do anything to help? You know, and so there's kind of the sense, well, we need to think about these things because we've we've blown it so much. We've just abdicated or we've lost our way or we've done all sorts of bad things. So this is something, a perennial issue. So now there are a couple different options. Uh, then I'm just going to throw out there, these are kind of uh, spitball on caricatures. You mentioned one. There's kind of the, I don't care about this relationship. I don't care about culture, which can kind of be the fundamentalist view, which is, well, it's all going to burn anyway, so why do we want to get involved? Mm-hmm. Then there's the, well, I kind of care about culture. We could say this is the Lutheran view of preservation. That, yeah, uh, they're not going to make culture, that culture. I know, I know that that culture is something that is just there that 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 kind of holds back the tides of utter evil in the world. And then there's the kind of I definitely care Calvinist view, which is culture is part of the creation mandate, life before the fall. And so we're in the, the so that was so a
1: gross over yes. simplification, <clears throat> some over. mischaracterization, but we'll go with it. Pre- preservatory is the idea that uh, there are certain elements of culture God has ordained to preserve culture but are not redemptive in and of themselves, so like police forces. And to be honest with you, Anabaptists play off of that and use that distinction quite often.
0: So that's uh, that, those are the, the gross caricatures. Now someone that we use to teach uh, in our class quite a bit is Richard Niebuhr. He has this famous book, Christ and Culture, where he offers... H. Fi- Richard. H. Rich- yes, H. Richard Niebuhr, where he offers these five famous types of relationships between christ and culture so the first one is christ against culture where there's an oppositional relationship it's always combative people want to separate from culture then there's christ the second one is christ of culture which is in the sense that there's no separation or distinction between a a certain culture and the the ideals of christ they're actually perfectly mixed there's christ above culture which he he, uh suggests is more of the catholic option which is where uh, Christ gives his grace and creation and creates culture, and but it needs to be perfected and lifted up into Christ, and so Christ is above culture. And then in my quick rundown, the last two is uh, Christ and culture and paradox. There's this kind of mysterious relationship uh, when this is healing. This word, dialectical. There's
1: Lutheran. dialectical
0: tension that can't be resolved between living in the world and living in Christ, living in the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of the church and Christ. Two
1: kingdoms. The, two kingdoms
0: that are in parallel and in paradox. And the last one, which he offers as more Calvinistic or Augustinian, is Christ transforming culture. Supposedly Augustinian. Christ transforming culture, which is when everyone read the book, they all want to be Christ transforming culture because all the other ones get a bad critique. And so these, uh, these five different types have kind of been in play for a long time. And we use Niebuhr's book as kind of a way to kind of get the conversation started. But what are some of the problems with the way he lays out the relationship between Christ and culture in these five different types. Yeah,
1: well, okay, so I kind of parrot Yoder on some of this, but... Let me... If I can, like, not go off the Yoder script for a minute, or actually I'll stay on the Yoder script. Uh, But I'll say this. uh, Typically my tribes of white evangelicals have imbibed at at the... Flask of Niebuhr, and have adopted those cultural instincts, and it has created a lot of problems for us. And so, I think we need to study and think through these things. I'll just tell you, like, what I think the big problem with Niebuhr is. Uh, there's two Niebuhrs: Reinhold, older brother, uh, Richard H. Richard, and uh, both brothers. And in Reinhold's term, terms, uh, politics assumes that we have conflict, that we have power struggle, that we have antagonism, that we have striving. Power is just the way things are. We are we ourselves are that are going to overreach and we are in conflict. And so, you know, like, you know, for Reinhold Niebuhr, democracy was good because we have checks and balances. He calls this realism, you know. Um, and so it's an idea that that's the way things are. The fall has created this world of sin and power struggle. And and you know, evangelicals have adopted that and that's why, you know, right now, even to this day, evangelicals actually kinda like Trump. Can you believe this? They like Donald Trump. Why? Because he sticks it in your face and he deals with real problems and he's gonna a conflict is part of the world. He's not gonna shrink back and he's gonna boom, boom, boom. By by boom, 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 I mean he's going to like, you know, get coercive and put things in place. Because you got, because power and coercion is part of the way the world works in the world after the fall, and we have no other choice.
0: Um, that kind of fits that against-cultural mold that he is standing against culture, even though on other levels he's totally immersed in the culture himself, as far as... Money and exactly. antagonism. So there's a certain set of cultural practices that he's indistinguishable from, and yet there's another set that he's railing against, and it kind of matches a lot of evangelicalism, where on the one hand they feel like they're embroiled in this yeah. cultural war, and on the other hand they're just mimicking the culture we're in.
1: Yeah, so, so that's another conversation, so, I suppose. Reinhold Niebuhr, the realism of politics, conflict, power, coercion, and the fact that if the church, the church can't really be like Jesus when it comes to this, we just have to get our hands dirty. That's Reinhold Niebuhr. Richard, H. Richard Niebuhr, you know, most famously in some of the stuff, Jeff, you've been talking about Christ and culture, you know, Christ turns into this principle which you know, truth, goodness, uh, purity, the one who points away from the materialist values of ordinary man to the Father. And, and Yoder says, well, no, Jesus is actually a Palestinian who actually engages in the struggles of culture but for for Niebuhr Christ is this principle of goodness which must somehow be related to culture as this monolithic entity and so what happens is there's no church here it's always in fact the, the church that does take on a cultural presence i.e. the Anabaptist Mennonite is viewed as sectarian and withdrawing from culture And so we have this problem where the church can't be a political entity of itself a cultural entity of itself we must in essence somehow make possible the principle of jesus to be relevant to culture but we can't ourselves embody culture and so the church gets taken out of it there is no church in h richard niebuhr's book christ and culture it's not church and culture Christ, the principle and culture. So those are the two problems that we have in the Burian understandings of culture. One is we must accept the terms as laid down by coercion and power politics of our culture. Evangelicals often fall into that space. And then secondly, the church is not really a culture unto itself. It can only send individuals out to do the intellectual work of culture and somehow bring the truth and goodness and aspirations of Jesus into the culture somehow. But it's always a compromise. So if we move from his view, which is that
0: there's a monolithic, monolithic culture and you either are all for it or you're all against it or you're all, you know, there's this totalizing relationship if we if if we understand that that's not how culture works and in fact there's not one culture there's many cultures there's a plurality of cultures and the church in a sense is, is part of co- these multiple overlapping cultures but it has its own culture and so when we move to that perspective we can find that the when he's so against the Christ against culture model we can actually say well you have to be against that because that challenges your your types most strongly so this is kind of the anabaptist alternative so can you talk a little bit more about that why how is it that the church has a culture and what does that mean for relating to other cultures
1: yeah i mean i have this little lecture i give in our uh, church and culture class called culture versus cultures and when we make the move from seeing culture as this monolithic singular reality versus cultures, plural, that we are now in a world where there are multiple cultures, and we actually have to discern very carefully each way what culture we're in, what is of God, what is not of God, what is uh, in it, what is not, what is uh, the, the, the founding place of God's purposes, but they're not complete, what is in rebellion against God, which we must resist or even withdraw, until we are, in, when you go from culture to cultures, plural, Now the church must become a discerning place and almost uh, by default become a culture among cultures. And I think that's the Anabaptist space. We've gone from being this place in power, where we get to send out intellectuals into all the high places to teach other people how to be good Christians, and this is very hard to do when no one cares anymore, or we can now take this humble posture of being a community in and among various cultures, um, discerning what God is doing and becoming that salt and light in the world. Does that make sense? Yes. That was a ramble. If there no, was. that was good. That was excellent. So
0: amidst these culture and these cultures, there's also um, a question of power. How do these cultures get and wield or lose power and then how does the church itself function within the question of power which kind of transitions us to our next
1: topic but, but all this to say this is why we we need to you know lead future pastors future leaders of any kind of the church into a way of understanding how to engage culture you can't avoid it you cannot resort to these default functions of uh, either uh uh defending against and withdrawal or uh, loving everything and being absorbed, neither engages culture. And in order to do that, we need to understand then the new posture of the church being in and among culture. And that's what reading Yoder, uh, Niebuhr, and Rauschenbusch, and reading Hauerwas, and then reading various other contextual theologians, like for instance, uh, James Cone and uh, Cornel West, that's what that kind of work can do for you.
0: As a little pit stop here, uh, partway through this podcast, uh, (coughs) this is why we've kind of created the new Masters in Theology and Mission. Um, As a Master of Arts Arts in Theology and Mission, as a way of, of training up contextual theologians, missionary theologians who are aware of all these different cultures overlapping as well as being rooted in the history and in the biblical uh, scriptures and uh, just having all those different skills. And so um, it's a just to do a little pluck, a little advertisement here. It's a local, affordable and communal program that we've put together. And our goal is that every person will be able to stay in ministry and also stay out of debt. So this new master's degree here at Northern Seminary. Where are we? We're in the library. This is where you always We're like in to us. In the conference room. This is where we go. This new master's degree has a built-in scholarship for all students who are accepted into it, bringing the cost down from twenty-four thousand dollars to only eighteen, which is quite a steal. Classes begin. At and the, and, and eight,
1: eighteen. Eighteen thousand, ideally, as we've structured it over five years. So yes, Structured over
0: five years, which is about $300 a month as we structure Cost
1: of a medium
0: economy car payment. So classes begin at the end of September, and we only have a limited number of scholarships. For more information, go to seminary.edu slash matm. Again, that's seminary.edu matm.
1: If I can also put in a plug for the Doctor of Ministry Program, Missional Leadership. Which uh, is a uh, a kind of an amped up program to teach you ethnography, contextual theology, and engaging and leading churches into mission too. So uh, that's Demon, and we're actually accepting applications. I think for another month. So uh, call me, email me, or just send in your application.
0: You want me to shout out your uh, your cell phone number here on the packet? No. Okay. So we'll put that in the program notes on uh, different ways you can find out about those things. So. Now, lately, you've been wrapping up a book on faithful presence. You just posted on um, James Davidson Hunter's book, which I think is a really good book in a lot of different ways. Um, it's called "To Change the World," which is kind of gets at this question of well, how is culture changed? How is the world changed through the church? Um, and he kind of sees things as boiling down to two two sides. You have either the conservatives or the progressives or the liberals. And then he talks about the Neo-Anabaptists. So I want you to to talk about his view of the Neo-Anabaptists in just a second. So he says, uh, this is his kind of quick rundown of the conservatives and liberals. He says, conservatives are animated by a mythic ideal of the right ordering of society and thus see modern history as a decline from order to disorder. On the other hand, progressives has, have always been animated by the myth of equality and community, and therefore see history as an ongoing struggle to realize these ideals. And so you have these two postures. One is, we're slowly falling down this hill of history into, from order to disorder that's conservative. And the progressives are, well, we're slowly climbing up this mountain of equality and struggling for these different ideals. And so he sees them as on the right, um, tending toward isolation and regret and cynicism. And then on the left, toward offering some sort of civil religion as a way of, you know, secularizing these, or uh, sacralizing these secular practices of equality. Um, And so you kind of, as far as Niebuhr's categories, he uh, Hunter kind of sees it. Well, you're either against culture or you're of culture. That's a quick, the quick rundown. You want to add something to that, or we just want to get to his characterization of neo-Anabaptists?
1: Well, no, I I do think that. Uh, Hunter does some great work, uh, yes, especially absolutely. in the in a way he talks about uh, the problems of, of mainly evangelicals, but also mainline Protestants as well, and how they fail to, uh, uh, the, the way they engage politics has created um, this defensiveness against posture of say the evangelicals or the re- relevance to again it's the thing we're just talking about, and uh, and then Hunter. He's got a, quite a sophisticated view of culture, which, uh, admittedly, what we've, what evangelicals have been trying to do is kind of change individual minds and then go in and infest uh, the world with with new enlightenment of, of Christianity and principles and values and creation. But Hunter says that'll never happen and nothing will ever change. So he does some, um, he, he does some really good a critique of the church's woeful engagement of of United States of American politics. Mostly he's talking about USA, not Canada. Sorry, Canada. And um, uh, that first essay, to change the world, is a good one. Where, where I kind of get a little um, uptight about James Davis and Hunter is his characterization of Anabaptism, because he does what I call the standard account, which is frankly, oh, all Anabaptists are sectarian. They don't want to engage in the dirty business of politics and power politics. They're so worried about purity they'll never get their hands dirty in the real world. Yeah and this of course is revealing of, of Hunter's Reinhold Niebuhrian uh, kind of hangover there. he's He's got a little bit of that way of understanding politics and that's just the way it is. It's just that realism and therefore Christians who are not willing to engage in it uh, are just going to withdraw and I think that's quite obviously a false characterization of, of Hauerwas Yoder in, in Neo-Anabaptism. He also, um, he also, like, uh, so this is where he gets down to faithful presence, which frankly um, appears to me to be, for all intents and purposes, a Neo-Anabaptist uh, um, description of things. Uh, I wish I could find, uh, so, so he basically talks in his Idea of okay, the church must engage the world as faithful presence. He's talking about things like formation in a community, worship, discipleship, the rejection of this Constantinian in-your-face posture, uh, covenantal communities, direct local incarnational engagement. You know, even even quotes Jeremiah twenty-nine four through seven, which you know is about as Yoidan and Anabaptist as you get. It's almost, in every way, an articulation of Anabaptist ideas. But the problem with his faithful presence is there's no real understanding of the church itself as a dynamic way to be present in the world. Uh, And so what I argue in my little piece there on reclaimingthemission.com was that he makes the church into an instrumentality of faithful presence. The church is going to train people to be faithful presidents. This is almost the default of what it has to be. Um, It's not to be, as a community, the live, living, social reality of the kingdom, birthing form, a form of politics, reconciliation, ways of being together, ways of sharing life economically, socially, uh, in the forgiveness of Christ, that births new possibilities for politics in the world. So that's what I think faithful presence is, and I just think that uh, Davis and, uh, James Davison honor Hunter kind of fails in that last attempt. Brilliant book, but f- suddenly at the end leaves us hanging. Can we have practices that will shape us to be the faithful presence, not just the instrumentality of faithful presence?
0: It is interesting, and I think a lot of uh, other books uh, from evangelicals about culture and politics um, that I don't want to name specifically right now, but it always seems like... Because they're
1: some of your best friends, maybe? Yeah, Well, you can name them, go ahead. Maybe they're over but, there at Trinity Seminary uh, when you went to seminary. No.
0: <laughs> but it, it does seem that when you get really down to, to, to the heart of the matter, there's always a missing ecclesiology. And so even though there'll be parts where they'll say, oh, evangelicals have been too individualistic in the past, they've been too this, they haven't understand how cultural movements work, and blah, blah, blah. But then at the end of the day, there's still no ecclesiology.
1: Right, so this seems to be the problem here. Or, or, Or let's just, the problem is ecclesiology. I wouldn't say they have no ecclesiology. The ecclesiology looks like this. We're going to shape... Uh, we're going to have a church gathering of people to shape them individually into character that will then be able to go inhabit the world for his faithful presence. The main sociopolitical problem there is, is that those people left as islands unto themselves mm-hmm. uh, will become absorbed into the culture and the very power structures that uh we, w- we wish to resist or witness. For or way. Often they
0: just get totally burned out while they're out in the world trying to change things and they're just all of a sudden overwhelmed because they've lost the community, their character hasn't been uh, formed in such a way to be able to withstand kind
1: of, you know. So as opposed to sending individuals out all by themselves as the church is ascending in institution, the church itself becomes a way of life live before the watching world. As a sign and a foretaste of the kingdom of God, and His presence in the world, and it invites the world in, but it also engages and extends into the world. And this this kind of lack in in uh, practices to shape such an ecclesiology is what I find to be the main missing piece in James Davison Hunter, and by the way, a lot of mm-hmm. evangelical types, white academic types who write uh, on on church and culture. And isn't that a terrible thing to say? Because I technically am white, male, academic, but I disavow any uh, adjective that uh, that uh, describes me as academic.
0: So it seems, just to wrap up, it seems that often... As
1: evidenced by the clothes I wear. By the way. <laughs>
0: I'll take a picture. Uh, it seems that... Um, Or, not that it seems, but I would say, I would offer that the church really needs to engage in the practices that we bring up here quite a bit of mutual submission, of communal discernment, because those are are ways of dealing with and of shaping practices of power. It's how does the church deal with power amidst itself that uh, becomes the way in which it will know how to engage in the multiple cultures and the power struggles out in the world, but too often we just want to go into the world without having done any of that shaping ourselves, and we end up bringing our sin and not uh, grace.
1: Right, and so one, one of the uh, interesting things about Hunter's book is the way he talks about politics and power, and it appears like, it appears at least, not maybe 100% of the time, but 95% of the time, that the way he used politics is always in terms of this conflictual Niburian understanding of nation-state politics, and therefore even he says that, let me see if I can find the quote. Uh, even he says, politics is just one way, this is on page 185, politics is just one way to engage the world and arguably not the best, not the highest, most effective, most human way to do so. So there he's revealing sort of a, uh, um, um, a uh, chastened view of power yet it appears that that's the only way to understand power and what we want to talk about is the power of the cross and that it can be inhabited by a people so that uh, power is basically exchanged and exercised in totally different ways in the world and that's actually the shocking thing that the church has to bring to the world that we can live in peace that the power and authority of the kingdom of God through Christ, through his gifts, the Holy Spirit, and the mutual submission of one another to Jesus as Lord, shapes a whole new way to understand and engage in power. So a lot of times we are criticized, the two of us, but
0: then also any kind of Anabaptist perspective, is criticized for being afraid of power, views power as a bad thing, it's afraid of power, all power is evil. But that's not the case. The case is that we believe that Christ has all power and authority, and that power looks fundamentally different and is often confused and misunderstood by the world as it seeks to use power. And so we're not afraid of power. We just believe that there's a a totally different kind of way that power flows in the world uh, as those who bear the cross of Christ.
1: Right, and so... uh... You know, people like Michael Gorman reading Revelation responsibly, John Howard Yoder, and I always put an RYFC recognizing Yoder's flawed character whenever I'm talking about him because I want everybody to know I'm aware of it and I'm, uh, you know, dealing with that. But uh, uh, when, when Yoder talks about the rule of the lamb, that uh, Revelation 4 and 5 are picturing uh, the land that was slain. Worthy is the land that was slain to unseal, to take off the seal of the scroll, and to to open the seal one by one, the seven seals, and let the history of the world unfold. And even though there's suffering, and there's violence in the world, and there's war, he is waiting patiently and unfurling his power so that the last person can come into the kingdom uh, uh, that can possibly be brought in, and so that rule of the Lamb is the nonviolent, non-coercive, but gently in control, and man- you know, and in sovereign over all things. It's 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 a powerful ver- uh, vision of power and authority, the rule of the Lamb. Amen.
0: Amen. All right. Well, I think that wraps it up for today. That was a lot. That was a lot. That was good stuff. We're, but these are, you know, as always with this podcast, we kind of circle back to similar themes as we keep going. I feel going like sometimes
1: it would be better if we just gave a straightforward lecture on, say, uh, Anabaptism versus Niebuhrianism or, uh, you know, James Davison Hunter, what's good, what's bad. Because in that conversation, there was a lot we were throwing.
0: Ah, I think people room. like this version better. I mean, you could just come and take classes with us, but that would be a lot more boring. But, and then you can't do it like while well on your commute and whatnot. That
1: would be a lot more boring? I don't know, maybe
0: not. No, it'd be a lot better, actually, because you had more people to engage with than just us. Oh, now your phone goes off. Didn't, off. Immute, didn't mute your phone. Shoot. big mistake. Okay. Well, instead of instead of doing what you're reading, we should do, uh, who's calling you right now? I don't know. <laughs> you don't know? Well, let's <laughs> do, what, what are you reading? You're going first. Don't plan it off. All me.
1: right, well, you know, uh, I picked up this book, Political Theology, A Guide for the Perplexed, by Elizabeth Phillips, TNT Clark. I think it's a few years old now. But, uh, uh, you know, it's always helpful. Political theology is a relatively new discipline. Probably started in 1990 1990s somewhere, maybe a little earlier, uh, but full-bloom uh, 1990s. And to understand it, you know, political theology is wh- how what we believe about God, how that shapes how we organize ourselves as a society, as groups of people, in groups, and, 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 and pol- pol- uh, in the cities or police And uh, so uh, I think it's important to understand the dynamics and the history of this. Well, I like this book. And and by the way, if you just buy it for this, there's a good introduction on Yoder versus Oliver O'Donovan, these two very post-Niburian figures who are trying to articulate a biblical theology of how God Shapes people into, um, you know, political realities, social realities, the church, and the world, and politics. Uh, So I recommend *Political Theology: A Guide for the Perplexed* by Elizabeth Phillips.
0: All right. Well, I know this is uh, very highbrow, me, but I've been reading a lot of Karl Barth actually recently, in his *Church Dogmatics*, Part One or uh, yeah, Part One Two, and uh, it was in uh, it was all about Truly God and truly human, and how He reads uh, John 1:14, the Word became flesh. He has a whole section on the Word. He has the whole section on the flesh. And he has a whole section on the becoming and how you know you get the transition between the two, which I thought was very amazing, stimulating, and wonderful. But if I can throw a big, you know, however is I think the, the center of that verse, John 1, 14, is actually the second part. It's the, and he dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. It's, there's this whole presence here that uh, I think Barts, and I think a lot of contemporary theology miss uh, when we just think of, well we have this God term, and we have this human term, and we need now to bridge these two together, when really it's all about the presence, it's about the tabernacle from glory to glory, and all these different types of things. So I think he kind of missed it there. So, maybe he does it later. But, so that's what I've been reading. Carl Bart. Good times. Carl Bart. Carl Bart.
1: So, all right, well, that's it for today. We have a, by the way, we have a reading group on Carl Bart here at Northern Seminary for those who are interested.
0: Yeah. Uh, the Missional Learning Commons Contact is coming up Nathaniel soon. Nathaniel Grimes. Oh, sorry, Nathaniel Grimes. Yes. Missional Learning Commons is coming up in the first week of November. We're doing the mission of preaching details will follow. Be sure to follow us on our Facebook page, Theology on
1: Mission. Did you say the mission of preaching or preaching and mission? Uh, It's
0: the mission of preaching.
1: All I want to say is we're going to break down preaching and try to give some method and some context for why preaching, which I believe, is really important for the mission of the church. Believe it or not, and I'm not one of those people who... Who like when a pastor gets up and thinks I'm going to preach a 55-minute sermon every Sunday, and that's how I'm going to reach the world. So how does preaching yes. become important? Shape a people for mission.
0: That's November what? November 6th and 7th. Be yeah. sure to tell your friends. Look for it. We'll be on Facebook and on Twitter talking about it. Uh, but follow us on Facebook, and you will be sure to get all the details. So that's it for today. You can find Dave and I on Facebook and on Twitter. He's Fitchist. And I'm at Jeff Holsqua. Until next time, this Fitch, is... Fitch S F E S T. Way to promote yourself there. Well, you it just not talk... a little. Yeah, bit. okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> That's all right. Tell us, tell us about this book you're finishing. Just kidding. Next time. Until next time, Dave Fitch, Jeff Holstclaw, signing off from Northern Seminary.